from PRX. Stew. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, you know, they make typewriter keys sound like gunshots. Oh, that's just somebody riffing. Take me now, baby, here as I am. Hold me now. Try to understand. It is a bit rehearsed. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. And now some thoughts from our conspiracy theorist in chief. If you look at voter registration, you look at the dead people that are registered to vote, who vote. His grandmother in Kenya said he was born in Kenya and she was there and witnessed the birth. Okay? What was he doing having breakfast or whatever they were doing three months before the JFK assassination? Why are they doing that? Why, why is the father meeting with Lee Harvey Oswald? Like Trump, Hollywood loves conspiracy theories. But Hollywoods tend to be less preposterous than President Trump's and presented as fiction. Sam Adams is a senior editor at Slate, and he's as big a fan of conspiracy movies as I am. He's also got a new podcast all about them called Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club. The thriller part is probably more important to me than the conspiracy thriller as far as what's in and what's out. The thriller is just a a great structure for kind of the gradual accumulation of information and a kind of accompanying threat that swells the closer you get to the truth. And the conspiracy, the uncovering of a great conspiracy is just kind of goes hand in hand at that. So what we're going to do today is kind of a, a sampler of your podcast and play clips from some of the movies that you're doing whole episodes about. First off is The Manchurian Candidate, uh, where Frank Sinatra plays an army captain whose whole platoon is captured during the Korean War and brainwashed by the communists, and they all end up part of a communist plot to take over the U.S. government, right? I think that that's a pretty good start. I mean, it's important to remember that as much as this movie is kind of associated with the Kennedy assassination now, that it came out before it. And in fact, they, uh, Sinatra, who was a friend of Kennedy, had to kind of get Kennedy's blessing for the studio to proceed with it because it does center around a political assassination. And that was a touchy subject. Yeah. Well, here, the clip we're going to play is, is Sinatra, who, who plays Major Bennett Marco, talking to his superior officer. For the last six months, I've been driven nearly out of my mind by the same recurring dream. The medical officer in charge. What the hell does a medical corps know about intelligence work, Milt? I tell you, there's something phony going on. There's something phony about me, about Raymond Shaw, about the whole Medal of Honor business. For instance, when the psychiatrist asked me how I felt about Raymond Shaw, how I personally felt about him, and how the whole patrol felt about him, did you hear what I said? Did you really hear what I said? I said, Raymond Shaw is the kindest, warmest, bravest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. And even now I feel that way, this minute. And yet, somewhere in the back of my mind, something tells me it's not true. It's just not true. That was Frank Sinatra in The Manchurian Candidate. Um, so you did your first uh, podcast about it. D- do you think of it as, as the sort of prototype of this genre? I do think of it as kind of the prototype of the modern conspiracy thriller. I mean, there are certainly dozens, if not hundreds of movies before that about 
you know, Nazi spies and secret agents and things like that. But what really brings it into its own is the psychological element that you see in that, that clip where Sinatra's character, Bennett Marco, is talking about, you know, I'm going out of my mind. And he knows this thing, but his, his, his conscious mind is telling him it's not so, but some part underneath him, something just feels wrong. And he's been, as, as we find out later, he's been brainwashed by uh, the Chinese. I think we know that from that clip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. But he can't put his finger on it, so he feels things that he knows not to be true, and he can't reconcile the two. And that element, where basically to know the truth, you have to indulge something that makes you feel crazy and makes other people think that you're crazy, is really what kind of defines the conspiracy thriller. Yeah. Uh, it, it didn't immediately create a, a genre of these films, but let's fast forward to when when it bloomed, the mid-1970s. Uh, this genre was everywhere. Uh, this is a clip from another movie with, a, with an assassination plot. It's The Parallax View, directed by the great Alan Pakula. came out in 1974. Uh, what's the basic log line of uh, the Parallax View. Yeah, this is a real cornerstone of the genre. Um, this is about Warren Beatty, plays a, a reporter who is a, a witness to a political assassination to, at the beginning and stumbles onto this international syndicate of corporate assassins. Um, well, here is Warren Beatty uh, talking to Paul Apprentice in Parallax View. Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. Four. Look, Nobody's trying to kill you, huh? These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin Tucker thinks so, too. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. That, that is a very common sort of plot thing in these movies of, we all saw something, it was right there, but we didn't notice what was going on, Right. Yeah, I mean, one of the key elements in uh, the paranoid mindset, and this goes back to the paranoid style in American politics, the kind of classic 64 essay that really laid this this mindset out is Richard that- Richard Hofstetter, one of my heroes. Yes. But he emphasizes in that the, one of the, the hallmarks of, of the paranoid style is that the evidence is kind of right in front of us, and it's just a matter of- connecting the dots. Uh, the Parallax View came out in 74, which is right as Watergate was cresting. Um, Alan Pakula then went on to make All the President's Men a couple years later, which is, of course, about Watergate. But it really institutionalized this notion that the tiniest, most insignificant things, this kind of third-rate burglary at a, at a hotel in Washington can really be the crack that opens up right. this, the door to this the tremendous... The truth is out there. Yes, exactly. Another uh, great film... Uh, also directed by Alan Pakula, uh, as you mentioned, uh, came out in 1976, which was the story of the Washington Post uh, exposing Watergate, all the president's men. And maybe you don't even need to describe what that is, but it's that, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's all the president's men. I think this is, uh, of all the movies in the, in the series, probably the one um, that, that people at least know of the best. Uh, let's play this clip. Mitchell started doing covert stuff before anyone else. The list is longer than anyone can imagine. It involves the entire U.S. intelligence community, FBI, CIA, justice. It's incredible. Cover-up had little to do with Watergate. It was mainly to protect the covert operations. It leads everywhere. Get out your notebook. There's more. Your life. 
lives are in danger. I literally got goosebumps right now sitting here listening to that that clip. Yeah, it's such a great scene and it really... It was so- Hal Holbrook, by the way, as Deep Throat, who we didn't know this until recently, but was the number two guy in the FBI at the time. Right, and just the, this, I think if you've ever seen the movie or even, even even that clip, you can't help but picture the setting of this dark garage where they're meeting. It's so ominous. They're surrounded by this empty space that you feel like another character could step into at any moment. They're not safe. That sense of danger is is omnipresent, and that line, it leads everywhere, is just so key to this mindset that, you know, everyone is involved. Everything is a conspiracy. All the presence men... Um... I think is the only film on your list so far that's entirely and and pretty scrupulously about and consisting of historical fact, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, they were very scrupulous about sticking as close to the real story as possible to the point of spending a half a million dollars in 1973 money to rebuild the Washington Post newsroom on a soundstage and got trash shipped out from the Post to put in the wastebaskets. It has a somewhat different texture from the other movies in that, you know, you don't have scenes in these in the other movies of people kind of knocking on doors and crossing names off lists because that stuff is traditionally not cinematic. Yes. Um, and and it's, the, it's not life with the boring bits taken out, as Hitchcock said. Yeah. It's but, the boring bits. But the, the miracle of it is that they managed to make, um, you know, they make typewriter keys sound like gunshots and they really bring, bring home how powerful this sometimes very boring job can be. I, I have wondered lately and thought about and written about actually how and if these great films of the 60s and 70s, these conspiracy thrillers, actually played a real and significant role in oversensitizing Americans to the idea that everything bad is the result of conspiracy. Do you think so? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think people have certainly talked about how even just the existence of Woodward and Bernstein in the 70s kind of created a whole generation of journalists who are expecting to find their own deep throat and, and take down a presidency, and it creates this unrealistic expectations for the public in in how solid the information will be. I mean, that happens with, you know, real-life conspiracies are rarely as well-orchestrated or as seductive as the ones in, in movies. So we sort of impose these narratives on top of them and get a very false picture of what's right. really going on. Yes. Um, the most recent uh, movie on your list is Jordan Peele's fantastic uh, Get Out. Uh, this is a clip from that film in which, in which the star played by Daniel Kaluuya telephones his friend back home to talk about his misgivings about his white girlfriend's family whom he's visiting. I even want to tell you. What? I got hypnotized last night. Nigga, get the fuck out of here. Oh, yo, yo, yeah, yeah, to quit smoking, but it's Rose's mom's and psychiatrist, so... Bruh, I don't care if the bitches are Yana Von Zant, okay? She can't fix my motherfucking life. You ain't getting in my head. I know, she called me off guard, right? But it's cool because I'm cured. It worked. Bro, how you not scared of this, man? Look, they could have made you do all types of stupid shit. They'd have you fucking barking like a dog, flying around like you're a fucking pigeon, looking ridiculous, okay? Or, I don't know if you know this, white people love making people sex slaves and shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure they're not a kinky sex family, dog. That was Daniel Kaluuya and Lil Rel Howery in Get Out. Um... We will avoid giving too much of a spoiler for a movie that hasn't been out very long, especially. But what are the the the, the elements in this 
horror film that make it a conspiracy thriller. Well, yeah, well, this, as I mentioned, I, I kind of warped the definition of the traditional conspiracy a little bit to to mix things up and to, to just talk about some movies I wanted to talk about. And this is, I think, the furthest out from that. It is, you know, more of a kind of horror thriller. Uh, Jordan Peele, the writer-director, has kind of, I think, coined the phrase social thriller to refer to it. It, you know, it lacks the larger political element that we usually think of it as being part of a conspiracy. Because it's a small group of people. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, again, without giving too much away, but it's a conspiracy that's just based in one small town. And I think people know, and perhaps that clip should have told them, it's a conspiracy of white people <laughs> in which black people are the victims. Yeah, but this is a movie in which, uh, like The Stepford Wives, which is the 1975 movie that uh, Peele has cited as his biggest influence, it's a movie in which we have this one very small conspiracy. It's, it's I mean, it's kind of like society is, is the conspiracy. I mean, what's right. going on in this small town is very obviously and transparently a reflection of kind of institutional, really liberal racism across the country. And I think that, that audiences who keyed into the film very much sense that. So it is about kind of history or society as a conspiracy rather than something deliberately orchestrated. Well, and, it's, and because he, Jordan Peele, made the conspiracy deliberately outlandish, it allowed it, even though it's beautifully realistic in many ways as well, to be a great allegory, right? Right. I mean, one of, one of the interesting things about conspiracy thrillers is they indulge kind of our darkest fears, but there is also something strangely comforting about them in the sense that they tell us that, you know, we actually are right when we think that that things are wrong around us. And they tell us that someone is in charge, you know, that all these right. crazy things that are happening in the world, they are happening for a reason, even if we don't understand it. And it is you know, maybe in some way comforting to think that systemic racism is the product of, you know, a small group of conspiring white people who, I don't think it gives too much about the, you know, the way about the end of the movie can be vanquished. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the comfort of conspiracism, the comfort of that kind of paranoia. But back in 1973, in Gravity's Rainbow, the great Thomas Pynchon paranoid conspiracy thriller of its time, uh, he talks a lot about that very thing of the, the that we can't live without a certain amount of believing that there are people in control because, like, that's really scary if nobody's in control. Right, and and I, I think that you know, history shows us that is off. That's often closer to the truth that there really is no one minding the store, and in some cases the things aren't conspiracies because they don't need to be. You know, society is set up in such a way that people don't need to actively conspire with each other because they they all kind of know their roles. Sam Adams, uh, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can listen for free to the first episode of Sam's podcast, Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club, at Slate.com. Next, why videos of theatrical improv comedy performances don't quite land. It's like NHL hockey. It's just so much better when you're there. You feel like, oh, they could fall and get hurt. I talk with Matt Walsh, one of the stars of Veep, about making ad-libs work on the stage and on the screen. That's coming up in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. 
Yeah, yeah, directors are auteurs, and screenwriters can be precious about their scripts. But some of the most quoted lines in cinema were improvised by actors. He's looking at you, kid. Here's Johnny! You talking to me? You talking to me? All those classic lines were made up on movie sets on the fly. Filmmakers from Robert Altman to Christopher Guest to Judd Apatow have famously given their actors free reign to ad-lib lines, resulting at their best in thrillingly naturalistic or surprising or funny moments. But movies and TV are so painstakingly storyboarded, choreographed moment by moment. So in the midst of all that planning, where does the spontaneity come in? The perfect person to help us understand that is Matt Walsh, who improvises all the time on the set of the HBO comedy Veep, in which he plays the press secretary, Mike McClintock. Gary, what do you think of the new cut? Huh? Do you like it? Of course I don't fucking like it, Gary. It's the worst use of scissors since my failed vasectomy. The elfin look is in right now. I was reading about it. People don't elect elves, okay? They put them to work in grottos or they get them drunk at frat parties so they can toss them. Okay, that's doors. It doesn't matter. Matt Walsh is also a founding member of what's become the center of the improv industrial complex, the Upright Citizens Brigade. Those clips of uh, iconic film moments, I did not know that those were ad-libs. Like, that's very fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And do you know, I mean, historically, how it went from this form of warming up and let's just mess around here to being uh, synonymous in the last half century with comedy? My simplest sort of answer would perhaps be the type of directors who have achieved success recently, like Adam McKay or Judd Apatow or Todd Phillips. Like These are guys that are uh, friendly to the ad-lib line or want some improv on set. So in terms of comedy... I think part of it is that graduation of those guys into like right. ma- mainstream film. It would seem as if improv comedy is designed to be uh, performed live, trapeze, you know, yes. tight wire kind of stuff. The, the the ability to fail like is real. You feel it. Yeah, yeah. But you can't really fail. I mean, you can fail on camera, but you can't fail in that in the moment because you can do it over again. So how does that work? Improving when they're shooting you. So. My experience in general is usually there's a good script for a comedy and then you get to moments where that aren't working and then there's a little powwow with the director and the writer and then they'll talk about ideas and they'll they'll give you free reign like, okay, play with this one. Or you've captured what's been filmed already and they'll give you what's called a free take and you can just mess around and, yeah. and discover other things or create things that will never end up in the movie and sometimes they do. So are there things that killed on stage at Upright Citizens Brigade, the UCB, but when you try to do them in, in, in Veep, for instance, it just doesn't work at all being filmed? That's a good point. I think the lines that work or that stick in a, in a, in a movie are lines that come from the character, like their point of view or their perspective, or you're improvising on story, like the things that don't get used in movies is when you're sort of riffing and you're doing a riff about somebody's penis size or how much they masturbate, like those sort of easy low-hanging fruit. But that is sort of a low-hanging fruit gimmick, if you will. Yes. It's not on story, and it's not likely to make the cut. Or if they end up in the movie, you can kind of see it and go, oh, that's just somebody riffing. 
So right. if you're going to try to get something in the film, try to improvise on story or try to improvise something unique and say it uniquely like that character speaks. Yeah. I, I've been to improv, live improv, and I, I find myself laughing hilariously at something and then realize when I try to tell somebody about it, like, no, you, I guess you had to be there to, to realize why that was funny. Does that happen a lot? It is true. It's like NHL hockey. It's just so much better when you're there as opposed to watching it on television. And people get hurt, too. <laughs> and there is fights. <laughs> I think it's the reality, kind of like what you talked about, is you feel in the trapeze, like you feel like, oh, they could fall and get hurt. We wouldn't get hurt, but you, when you're in the room, you feel like, oh, this, there's a real chance of failure, and they're really trying to keep the ball up in the air here. And when you see it on television, I think audiences assume like, well, you can fix it in post, and they probably you can write it, you can cheat. So they don't get that sense of danger. So it, it seems like a contradiction, but how do you prepare to do improvisation? I think in Veep world, you just sort of rehearse it and talk about it. Like, I don't want to say this, can I say this? And the writers will have alt lines, and it's a very fluid, and you're always just trying to make it feel messy and like sort of real spontaneity even yeah. though it's scripted so it is a bit rehearsed as your showrunner dave mandel here set called it he says that's when we zhuzh it up that is the word i was <laughs> trying not to say that i think that's a julia thing when you zhuzh it up and yeah i can't define that word but nor could dave for us what it means is let's say we have a scene where it's two characters are talking things sometimes just start to get a little rote, a little line, 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 line. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. That's great. That's not how we talk. Even right here uh, on, you know, you and I talking on this interview, we're trying to stay out of each other's way, but occasionally we're talking over each other. And that's what zhuzhing is. That's what messing it up is. And it's a real hallmark of Veep. From the interview I did with your Veep head writer, uh, Dave Mandel. Yes. What I think we do well on the show is they make it seem sloppy and messy and right. like unintentional. Right. But so much choreography and so much rehearsal goes into getting that. Right. So. No, it's sort of like Robert Altman, although I assume unlike those movies, you're not all high all the time, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have done a film with Robert Altman. I met a woman who was a makeup artist for him, and I was just grilling her because he had since passed, and she said he equated filmmaking to, and maybe it's been in one of his books, but he said it's like making an elaborate sandcastle in that all this effort goes into one moment and then it's gone like it'll just wash away like we have the set the actors are there and then it goes away that's so this intense effort for an yeah. elaborate sandcastle that's very eastern and zen yeah. in its uh notion uh so let's listen to you in action in the cinema here is a moment i'm told you improvised in the movie elf uh, which starred Will Ferrell. You play this random guy being interviewed on the local news after seeing Santa's sleigh. Yeah. Sir, what did you see? I think you're great, Charlotte. Uh, I, I saw something fall from the sky right in the middle of Central Park. I mean, you're a great news lady. Thank you. <laughs> Could you tell me a bit more about what you saw fall from the sky? Yeah, yeah. Your eyes tell the story. That's what I love about you. you, you got a great mouth. It, the, the thing just dropped in the middle of Central Park. It was, it was amazing. How much of that was on the page? That was directed by John Favreau, and I think before that scene, the dialogue is basically, I have to say that I saw Santa in Central Park. I had a few lines in the reporter, a few lines. And then Favreau was like, why don't you hit on her? He just sort of gave me a general point of like, why don't you hit on her while, you, while she's interviewing you? I'm like, great. And then I think I sort of pitched him a couple ways, like, what would you say? And I threw out a couple examples. He's like, go in that direction. But it wasn't scripted. Right. And so we sort of had an idea of like, I'm going to hit on her. And I kind of have a world or a world of lines, I might say. And then 
all the while still delivering the lines that are on the page. Well, which is in which is you know increasing your degree of difficulty a lot. I mean, okay, I got to remember the lines. I got I have to act, but and now more, I have to be funny. Yeah, but it's more fun because it wasn't probably a super funny scene as written, and I think that's what the <laughs> right. director was picking right. up on. So right. he and he happened to be an improv guy in Chicago too. Uh-huh. So he uh, knew that there was something else in there. So. He gives you license to do that. Was that one take or how no? That we did different versions. I think I said another. I hit on her another way, or uh-huh. I asked her if she got high, like in one take, uh-huh. <laughs> just like really stopping the interview. Yeah. You know what's funny too is I think on the early takes, I don't think she knew I was going to be improvising. So it's sort uh-huh. of like tricking or messing with your scene yeah. partner, yeah. but pulling she a was, gun. Yeah, <laughs> in the middle of the scene, stay in character, stay in character. <laughs> Here's an, another scene in another Will Ferrell movie that you uh, improvised uh, called Semi-Pro, um, 2008 movie. Will Ferrell plays a basketball player, uh, Jackie Moon. His mother had recently died. You play this referee uh, who's called Father Pat. Here is the scene from the movie. Traveling. No, 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 no. One and a half steps. Come on, Jackie. You walk. Suck my cock. I'll murder your family. You're gone, Jackie Moon. Jackie Moon is ejected from the game. What did I say? You said that's my seat. You're a big baby, Jackie. Jackie Moon and the referee really going at it here. I didn't say anything. You said that's my seat. I barely raised my voice. I should call your mother. You need a phone to heaven to do that. Maybe your mom didn't go to heaven. Oh, dear. Oh, Oh, my. Look, Jackie, I'm sorry. Stop the broadcast. Jackie Moon is pulling his team off the court. You forfeit this game, Jackie, if you keep walking. That's fine. You threatened to kill my family. Maybe your ma didn't go to heaven is a great line. Was that just in the moment? Yes, that was uh, Kent <laughs> Alterman directed that film. And uh, and by the way, semi-pro funnier than people think. That's a funny scene. I, I never, I've only now seen the clips that you were in. That you were in. I, never, I never saw the film. Yeah, I, th- I believe if memory serves, that scene was me ejecting Jackie from the game, and Will Ferrell obviously is so great throwing a tantrum or just getting (laughs) really worked up. So I think I would guess the first two or three exchanges were scripted, and then once it elevated, it just was improvised. And then we probably repeated it two or three times. But I I would imagine like saying your mom didn't go to heaven probably just (laughs) happened in the last take. Was the movie recrafted to like, whoa, this is great. We're going to do this differently because – it, it well, I think the plot. I think we serve the plot, and the plot is, is right. written in the script. Is like uh, Jackie gets ejected from the game and throws a small tantrum, right. punts the ball. So that was still in there. What they had were these extra moments of like the continued exchange, S my C, yes, all and, of that stuff. And but what you about S my C, which again uh, just makes me laugh for that somebody would say that in the heat of the moment. <laughs> I think that probably came from earlier. I think that was something like back in my UCB days. We would say to each other like. As a way of being polite, hey man, why don't you S my C? So it wasn't like a new phrasing I came up with. That was something I'd said before with friends. Well, that's really interesting because that's exactly from. what I expect. Like jazz players have played a certain riff before, yeah. but they th- this is the moment I can use that. Yeah, yeah, and it applied to that. And he, I didn't know he was going to say suck my whatever. So yeah. it worked out perfectly. Yeah. yeah. We've talked repeatedly about Veep. I want to talk about your role, Mike McClintock, White House Press Secretary, and I, now former White House Press Secretary, I guess. Mm-hmm. Th- that show really uses improv. It, it's baked into the making, 
right? What, uh, as far as improv goes, it gets used mostly in the rehearsal process. We'll read the table read and then we'll workshop them. And then the successive drafts will reflect discoveries and things we did in rehearsal. But rehearsal at a table or rehearsal standing up and acting? Well, what it'll be is we'll be in the, uh, the writer's office and we'll turn the kitchen into an airport lobby or we'll use the hallway by the writer's room and we'll pretend it's the White House or the Oval. If there's a, if there's a speaking role that somebody's not there that they other actors will step in so i get to play a senator or i get to play like the qatari ambassador huh, huh. and so we get to like be the sounding board for the characters who are also in that scene how in- well that sounds like some uh you know it's like I- theater camp it's yeah, really fun a- utopian dream of it what it's supposed to be like it really is and it's a very unique process there's not many shows where i've been huh. able to do that huh. here is a clip uh from veep season four uh episode called testimony uh, the characters are being mm-hmm. questioned by this congressional committee investigating a computer data breach. This is your scene. They saw you in the White House parking lot with Mr. Egan, Ms. Berkheimer, and Senator Pierce. Uh, that's correct. I ran into them by chance because I was merely getting something from my car. What were you getting? I'm sorry? What were you getting? Uh... I was getting some uh, medicine. What kind of medicine? Um, it's knee medicine. Knee medicine? Yeah, knee medicine uh, for uh, one of, just one of my knees. Which one? Which knee? My left, left knee, Your Honor, uh, sir. My left knee, I have problems with my left knee. Um, it hurts when I uh, crouch. What was the name of the medicine? Um, I want to say it's called uh, Crouch Cream, but that's not right. Um, it's a white tube with a red label. I'm, I'm sure an intern could research this. It has a silhouette of a horse on it, and I don't know why the horse is on there. I guess horses probably have good knees. So, um, But I think it's called uh, Kneezy, Kneezy Cream. I don't think that's it. It's it's searchable. I'm, I'm I'm very positive. The fact that they used that whole thing in the show is extraordinary. How improvised was that? That's a fascinating episode. So that's an episode where I think we shot like 58 pages that day. And Armando created this congressional hearing room. Armando Yanucci, the creator. Yeah. Everybody in there, even the cameramen were dressed as aides. And so you were kept off set. It was like a murder mystery theater. He really kind of messed with us in the best way. So he gave us this living set and we were being interviewed and we had scripts uh, that we could put down. But basically in that section, the bit was about knee cream and Mike would describe the bottle, but everything else, you're just sort of being really, so you walk in the room and you're extremely nervous because everyone's looking at you and you sit down and my sort of direction for my characters, like be really nervous and be really sweaty. So I just held on to that, and then I tried to make my way through like the knee cream bit, and then ad libbing things to get to the next bit. Um, if that makes sense. Well, and like the intern, you can look at it, it's, it's searchable. That yeah, that's of, probably an offhand line. Yeah, that's probably which, an ad lib. Again, I made me made me laugh. Maybe you don't have anxiety when you improv at this point, having done it for decades. But I would think that the inherent anxiety of <sighs> improv would be perfect. For this character who's like nervous and doesn't know what he's going to say. Yeah. Right? It's it's wonderful. It's like you basically are put in this scenario where you can't drop character. Once you're dropped into that 
fake testimonial, but everyone's playing that game. You, no matter what happens, don't drop that character. Right. Don't drop that point of view. So totally method. I love improv. that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Well, you've maintained your character so far in this interview very, very nicely. What is that character? Uh, the, 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 the friendly, loquacious, uh, cooperative <laughs> uh, actor, writer. Okay. That is my character. Um, Matt Walsh, uh, thanks so much for doing this. This was fun. The seventh season of Veep uh, begins, well, next year in 2018. Uh, but I'm sure you can watch all of the wonderful past uh, episodes of the last six seasons on HBO. You can also watch Matt Walsh in the new movie Brigsby Bear, which was a big hit at Sundance and opens all over America on the 28th of July. Coming up, Jimmy from the Hood. In fact, my hood. Isn't it wonderful? I remember I saw my first Playboy magazine right off the corner of Bobby of, of Leone's house. The rise of Jimmy Iovine from Brooklyn kid to music industry mogul. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. You're kidding. Hey, we're on the same block, man. You, that's where you grew up? I grew up, my whole life was spent on that street. That's amazing. Is that freaky? I got goosebumps totally now. Freaky. I know 3A, because they're those Victorian houses. Yeah. This is music industry mogul Jimmy Iovine, who I learned as soon as he sat down in our studio, grew up on the very same block in Brooklyn where I've lived for 27 no, 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 years. No, 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 no. The only thing that came out of our neighborhood was my cousin, Roseanne Scamadella. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. That was my cousin. Right. She lived there. Her her pictures are still, like, in some of the delis and stuff. Is right? that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Roseanne and Scamardella, New Yorkers might remember as a local news anchor in the late 70s and early 80s. Her cousin, Jimmy, turned out to be an even bigger deal. He co-founded Interscope Records and, more recently, teamed up with Dr. Dre to launch Beats, the headphone company and streaming service, which they sold recently to Apple. I came out of Brooklyn without an education and without a lot of, you know, feel or culture for that, you know, or understanding of the arts or anything like that. You know, I was in a band, but that was about it, you know? Jimmy Iovine's music education started in the 1970s when he was 19 and a junior recording engineer. His job, setting up microphones and working a soundboard, wasn't glamorous, until suddenly, fortuitously, it was. I learned from John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, and John Landau, which was Bruce's manager. And when you, that, it was so, it was so condensed, because when you make an album with someone, you, you're together 12 hours a day, at least six days a week, you know? So I did six albums with those people, uh, you know, combined. And I came out of there having a feel for what would go, but yet would still with credibility. Right. What could hit, Right. but yet still... You're still, everybody's proud of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so when you were, as a, what, 22-year-old, 23-year-old working with Patti Smith uh, 40 years ago, um, did you, uh, did you have a, uh, at that moment, did you have a conception of what the audience would respond to to her? Because she was a, she was a cult figure at best. Remember, I just came out of Lennon and Springsteen, so I watched the poetry thing be really big. So I had high hopes for Patty. 
Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine Milton pot thieves wild caught in my sleeve So I said why isn't sky the limit on this thing, you know? So at that at a moment, I said, so, you know, Patty, we have this great album, but we don't have a single. You know, we don't have a song that make people that don't know you get into the album. And she didn't say, why are you trying to make me sell out, you suit? Yeah. Well, I wasn't a suit, but I, I was... Uh, I was uh, you were a salesman. I was, <laughs> yes, I was a salesman without a suit. Yeah. Um, by the way, right before that, I worked in the leading mail in Brooklyn, and I was selling suits. So that's where really? it all kind of came together. Wow. Um, so... I went to her and she said, I do my I'm a, I do my own music, man. I don't do one of the people. So I said, look, Bruce, Bruce has this song that he's not gonna use. And I think if you finished it, the lyrics, I think it's gonna be so powerful. I can't tell you it's gonna be a hit. I can just tell you it's gonna be powerful. A woman singing those lyrics, you know, desire is hunger is the fire I breathe, you know, and because the night belongs to lovers. You know, take me now, baby, here as I am, hold me now, try to understand. I mean, a woman singing those lyrics was so powerful. And it hadn't happened, really. I mean, that, 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 it, there in the were... old days, the old days right. you'd have like the Shangri-Las, but in the rock and roll, not at that moment right. where right. punk was happening, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, let's, and, and so you had this tape from the famous Bruce Springsteen, your friend, and, and you gave it to her and said... I begged her to listen to it. it. Took about a month for her to listen to it. Well, let's let, let's us listen to it. Here's here's that tape. How'd you get that? That's the original demo. Yeah. Wow, that's when we cut. I remember cut, we cut that record the same day as Fire. He had 70 songs for Darkness on the Edge of Town. And we cut that record. Man, working in the hot sun. I remember those lyrics, man. Did, did you, was she resistant, Patti Smith? Because, oh, Bruce Springsteen is this big, giant star now. And I, I'm, I'm different. And we have a different sensibility. Or, or, or what, what, what was... Well, they had a Jersey competitiveness as right. well. Of course, South Jersey competitiveness. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they had that going on. Right. And, uh, but I just, I learned the, uh, I started to learn the, um, the art of persuasion, you know, and I just, I just kept on it, you know, like my father, <laughs> my father used to tell me all the time when my mother would drive us all crazy, he says, no one hammers a nail like your mother. And I think I got it from her. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, th- this turned in, of course, to, to Patti Smith's big hit. Take me now, baby, here as I am. Pull me close, try and understand. Desirous hunger is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed. Come on now, try and understand. So even though Patti Smith was reluctant to record that, it became more popular than any song she made before or since. I think her only top 20 hit. And and, and right when it came out in 1978, hip-hop was emerging up in the Bronx. When did you start paying attention to to that? 
my first introduction to rap was well, was that it was a, a Run DMC, but I really still wasn't paying attention. My first moment was when Dre and Suge walked in my office and played me the Chronic because I didn't understand hip hop records because I was a fanatic, meticulous recording engineer. And those records were made really sloppy, the early uh, hip-hop hmm. records, on purpose. Yep. But I still didn't understand the whole subwoofer thing and the 808 and all that stuff. So when he came in, it was like somebody gave me 3D glasses. So I was like, whatever this guy's doing, I've got to get in business with him. One, two... I guess you just started Interscope at that point. Yeah. And you put out Dr. Dre's album. That, yeah, that the, the Chronic, chronic out, yeah. Which featured a lot of Snoop Dogg. When I heard the lyrics and I saw what they were doing, they reminded me of Mick and Keith. You said that a lot at the time. It was very clever. It just does. They reminded me because they scare you, but they bring you in with their music. I remember going to Jan Winter and, and saying to him, man, this is Mick and Keith. Put them on the cover. The of editor of Rolling Stone, who at that time, I probably had never had a never had rap artist. No, yeah. no. MTV was the same way. They weren't playing gangster rap during the day, or they only played on M- uh, MTV raps. Yeah. And, and radio stations uh, were not playing no. that no. single, nothing but a G-thang. Nothing and, like that. And, and, and so you went out and bought time and just yeah. played a minute of the song on That's a lot of stations. That's what I did. I told my promotion people, I said, look, uh, I... This has got to get on the radio. So buy a one-minute spot. Don't do just, any just of play that it. stuff. Just play the goddamn thing. And before you know it, the phones exploded, and people had to play it. But that's what led to the record getting in the hands of kids that were going home to, like, congressmen and all this kind of stuff. And uh, we caught a lot of heat at Interscope. Well, you did, but you all at what when that first of all, it must have been fun to basically say screw you to you stations that won't play this. You're playing it because I'm paying you. Yeah. But uh, and of course, you, you know, uh, Tipper Gore and everybody in Washington. Oh my God, listen to the read these lyrics. It's terrible. But but the other thing that happened that you had a big part in doing is making rap music the 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 cool thing for every 16-year-old white boy in well, American you know, suburbs. Well, Dre was a phenomenon, and we had him at the same time as Tupac and Snoop. And we had the—I knew we had the basis of something extraordinary. So what I did was back it. And I backed it because I knew it would go international as well. Like, I remember my promotion guy saying to me, we're never going to get this record on the radio. I said, they're going to be dancing to this in China. And everybody looked at me like I was nuts. It just caught me like that. Caught me like the wind. It just caught me, it hit me in the chest. And I said, I look, I didn't discover this stuff, but I'll tell you what, we are going to take this international. And we were, who knows what, what part of it we were, but we were part of that. I've said, I've, I've been saying for a while that hip-hop and rap are, were the last big new invention of American pop culture. Do you agree with that? Feels that way to me. Feels that way to me. I mean... Something's got to give. Right now, it's, you know, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, lots of people, most people probably, get stuck uh, with a lot of the music tastes they develop between age 15 and 25, and, and they don't change. 
uh, did you, I mean, did, are you just a guy who naturally would have kept discovering music or you realized, oh, I, this is my profession. I, I got to keep my ears open to new. Yeah, well, what happened was in, uh, in, the, ninth, in the late 80s, I realized that I wasn't a natural at producing anymore, actually in the studio, because I, I started getting older. And in the 70s and early 80s, it was very natural for me to walk. I knew exactly what to tell the band. I knew exactly what we were doing. As soon as I felt a little bit of that, I said, I'm going to make a label and be, I'll be able to um, yeah. work with the younger people and and, be on, and learn about the cutting edge of what's happening in music today. And you did that before you were actually old, when you were barely— Well, it like, felt older than me. You know yeah, what I mean? you were I, older than the I was, 30, the, I was than 37. The yeah, yeah. I was, I was yeah. older than the artist. Uh, another— Big Interscope band uh, uh, after that was the rap rock group uh, Limp Biscuit. This is. <laughs> so that's Limp Biscuit's rolling. Uh, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that the Cognoscenti won't say that that stands the test of time the way Patti Smith and Bruce Springsteen and Dr. Dre do. You're right. The music, uh, it, it, they still have, they still go out there and play, I think, but uh, it's not like the stuff you're talking well, about. Well, I remember you saying, uh, or I, I was reminded that you said at the time that Fred Durst, the front man, was like Oscar Wilde and William S. Burroughs. Really? Did I say that? According to a Guardian article in 2000, you did. Um, but anyway, in, in the 2000s, a generation after you'd signed Dr. Dre, he became your partner in Beats, the headphone uh, company and, and streaming service, which in 2014, you sold to Apple for $3 billion. So now are, are you a, a, an Apple Music employee? Yeah, I am an Apple employee now. Uh, I Do you go to Cupertino and show I up? I go to Cupertino once a week. And we're building a music service. Right now, music needs an elegant way for people to find music, to understand it. And the services are close, but they even need more work to become a really of service rather than just a, a utility. And that's what people need. People need a way right now to discover artists, to share with their friends, to do it, and, uh, and to communicate with artists. Artists need a way to communicate with their audience. And um, that's what I think streaming services will really catch once that happens. Yeah. Although, you know, Spotify and Pandora do a decent job at what they're doing. We are, we're at around 30 million people as yeah, well. Yeah, uh, uh, Streaming. By the way, 30 million people is almost as much as serious radio. Right. For example. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, let's listen to a, a very popular band, streaming band. Uh, this, these are the Chainsmokers. Hey, I was doing just fine before I met you. I drink too much and that's an issue, but I'm okay. Hey, you tell your friends it was nice to meet them, but I hope I never see them again. Now, am I just being a fogey, or are, are streaming audiences these days more into that kind of eh, nice, untroubling... Blah, blah. I can tell you that paid streaming, Spotify paid and Apple paid, the top 20 are 80% hip-hop. 
So unpaid is the is the is yeah. what, what I used to call bubblegum music yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that going on. The mainstream radio and it's pop is getting there streaming wise. It's, it's I mean it's no slouch. And this record was top ten or top five streaming wise, but it uh, it's primarily the top end is. Uh, and it's worldwide, by the That's way. That's interesting. Why is that? Because I think a lot of people listen to hip hop are first uh, some, you know, people that are, get on things earlier. And I think Drake and Kendrick Lamar really understand how to communicate with their audience, and especially somebody like Drake and Future to Prince's manager. They really understand how to move music through this system, you know, and um, so their audience. Follows them there, you know, and, uh, and so so the people who like the free, uh, the people who like the poppier stuff, it's it's not unlike when we were young. The the difference between top forty and like album oriented FM. I mean, there that yeah. the, the, those kinds of uh, bifurcations yeah. Yeah. Have always existed. Well, you know, it's 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 a right now people want to be famous as much as they want to be great. Unfortunately, you know. <laughs> And, uh, or that's, more sometimes. Well, that's the thing. So you know, you, you, it's it's a it's a tough time for music. So, are, are, since you you're brilliantly helping Apple uh, navigate the waters of music, why don't you help them make a new breakthrough uh, product? Because I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> it takes it takes somebody much more talented than me, yeah. like uh, like the guys up there. Jimmy Iveen, this has uh, been a real pleasure. I thank you. And a great pleasure for me. <laughs> Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre are the subjects of a new four-part HBO documentary called The Defiant Ones. Oh, that was fantastic. The fact I mean, that you live there. Place. Isn't it wonderful? I remember I saw my first Playboy magazine right off the corner of Bobby of, of Leone's house. And that's it for the show this week. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Lily Mitchell. Our producers are Daniel Guimet, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders. And our intern is Flood Gillette. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, the novel that brought white America face-to-face with racism. Richard Wright was saying, let's stop asking for permission. Let's stop selling ourselves. Let's stop apologizing. If you're angry and you know it, clap your hands. You know? <laughs> I'm Kurt Anderson, Richard Wright's native son. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Stay happy.